That's exciting, isn't it? You know there are so many exciting things going on. We're excited about our series starting next week. We're excited about the night service. And just so you know, if you are interested in either serving at that night service, we need a few people to help with setup. Our crew team, we also need a few people, AV, musicians as well. We're looking for night service. So if that's you or if you just want to make this your service, we ask that you would come here on August 25th. Man, I'm struggling with dates today. August 25th, the last Sunday of August. We are going to kind of have our dry run of the service. So be here at 6 p.m. because that's when the service starts, right? And we're going to not have a full service, but we're just going to kind of come here, have a rally. It's going to be fun. So make sure you plan on being here. If this is going to be your service, 6 p.m. that Sunday, August 20, what is it? Yeah, that's, that's in three weeks. Okay, but there are exciting things going on, but man, we've had a rough week in our nation, right? So before we get into our message, I just want to take us to have a time that we can just stop and pray. You guys good with that? Let's pray. Um, Lord God, you know all the things that are going on in our nation, and they, they hurt us when we wake up in the morning and see uh, not just one more mass shooting, but a third one in one week. Lord God, our hearts break. We grieve, and we know that there are people that are hurting so desperately right now that they need you when we pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would comfort those who are in need, that you'd help them grieve and that you'd provide them hope. I pray that you'd provide healing to the the lives and the cities that have been hurt this week. I think of my friend Denny in Gilroy, California, that you'd help him to be a pastor to meet the needs this week uh, of a people that are hurting. Down in El Paso and in Toledo, Lord God, would you comfort those who are grieving. And Lord God, we pray that you would bring an end, a complete end to gun violence in our nation that you would stop whatever the psychological issues, the hate issues, the discrimination, whatever it is, Lord God, that you would stop it. We pray that you'd bring peace, that you'd use us as agents of reconciliation, that we would be the peacemakers in this world. Lord God, we pray for an end to all hatred, whatever it is, and for the people that are just desperate and hurting, Lord God, bring people into their lives to help them find hope. You come into their lives to provide them hope, Lord God, and we pray that you would come quickly that you would bring an end to this and bring peace on this earth once and for all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay. So uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 6. So go ahead and grab your Bibles if you want to, uh, to get there. Um, one other thing I just wanted to say before I jump in my message. Um, our, our building, we have an awesome building, historic Hangar 61. We love it. We own it. It's a blessing. We're the only church in Stapleton to own their own building. We know this is a blessing from God. But it also is having some cracks in the cement, on the concrete. Not cement. I had a friend tell me it's concrete. Okay. So we have some, So if you are a structural engineer or know someone who could help us, just to kind of figure out if this is, you know, what the issue is, what's going on. We just want to fix it. So if you know anybody, come talk with me. Okay? Sounds good? Thank you. Okay. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 to 7 as we conclude our series where grace and truth collide. So in this series, we've been talking about that tension we all feel as followers of Jesus. It's like we're in this game of tug of war on our hearts. On one side, we're feeling the tug of grace. We want to show compassion and kindness to welcome and accept everyone, no matter who they are. We feel that. We're getting tugged. But then on the other hand, we we say, hey, this is what God's word says. This is what the truth is. This is how you're supposed to live, and this is how you're not supposed to live. And we feel pulled in that direction, too, because sometimes those seem to be at odds with each other, right? And we feel those tensions back and forth and back and forth. We're pulled. So in the first week in the series, we learned that what can happen is if you get pulled one way and not the other, you kind of go out of bounds. And we learned three math equations, and the first was that grace without truth equals chaos. 
It's chaos. If there's no truth, if there's no standard for what is right and wrong, everybody does whatever they want, and it's crazy. It, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in a family. It doesn't work in a society. It doesn't work in a church. We need some standard of what is true or else it's chaos. Then we learned a second equation that truth without grace is cruel. If you only say, this is what God says, it's my way or the highway, you're terrible and awful, I'm going to judge you and look down my nose at you. Man, that's not fun, that's cruel, it's judgmental. It's not a good environment, it's not healthy, it's cruel. So we learn, uh, learn the third, better equation, is that grace plus truth equals love. That if we really want to show people love, we need both of these things. We need to hold both of them in tension. That we accept and show grace and kindness and forgiveness to everyone, and we say this is what God says. And it's both of those always, forever, in every situation. We hold those and we hold the tension. And when you pull both sides of the rope at the same time, you stay where you're supposed to, where grace and truth collide. So we learned that in the first week of the series. And then we kind of did a test case, didn't we, on one maybe the hardest situation in our lives today as followers of Jesus? One of the hardest situations when it comes to marriage and sexuality. How do we do this? How do we hold on to both? And what we learned last week is that God's truth about sexuality is clear. And our grace for all must be just as clear, right? Jesus is saying, hey, this is what it means to follow Jesus in the area of marriage and sexuality. You can go back and listen to that message. It's clear. And yet we also, like Jesus, must show so much compassion and grace to people who are different than us, that are in different relationships than the ones that we want them to be in. Okay, we hold both of those always at the same time, and it's a hard tension, but we must be there. So that was the case study we, we looked at when it comes to grace and truth. And you can take that same idea of grace and truth colliding and you can apply it to any area of your life or the lives of other people around you. So what we're going to do now in this third message in this series is talk about what it takes so that we can have a church where grace and truth collide. What it takes. And and there's one thing in particular that it takes, and it's because it's very challenging and there are all sorts of situations where this comes up in. So I want to give you two test cases, two scenarios that that I've slightly adapted. They're based on true scenarios, but I've changed them a little bit. Um, But they're real things that I see in a church as a pastor that I have personally uh, witnessed or or been a part of. So the first scenario is that in the church, there's a church service about to start a worship service, so people are coming in. Well, an older gentleman had come early, and he was from a different church in the same denomination, but he came early, so he was a respected person. Everybody knows who this guy is. He comes in early, And he kind of makes himself a greeter. And as people are coming into this worship service, he looks at people and tells them that they're wearing the wrong clothes. There's a teenage girl, and he says, hey, you're not supposed to have jeans with holes in them. You need to go change your pants. To a woman, your your blouse is too low cut for this worship service. To another guy, you've got to take off your hat. Because he's saying, hey, this is the rules that you need to show respect to God. And in my tradition and background, this is how you do it. How the heck do you handle that situation, right? Okay, that's the first scenario. Now, here's the second scenario. The youth group is going on a mission trip. It's in the United States, so they're traveling by bus. But because of the distance that it's traveled, they're going to stay one night in a hotel on their way there. And they have all these teenagers with a lot of testosterone and hormones going on, right? So they make some, some rules and they say, hey, we don't want any couples on this trip, right? No coupling, right? So we're going to have the boys and the girls in separate rooms, of course. And we don't have enough chaperones, so we're going to be very careful with those rooms. 
Well, one of the teenage girls invites her friend, who's not a believer, to come on the trip with them. And they're so excited. Awesome. Not only do we get to do this mission trip and serve, but we get to witness to this person who's coming along with us. This is awesome. They're so excited about it. Well, the day before the trip, they find out that this girl's friend, another girl, is not just her friend, but they're in a romantic relationship together. Well, now their rule about separating the girls and the boys, well, that doesn't work anymore now, does it? So how do you handle that situation if you don't want any... I mean, the rules are specific. So as you think of those two scenarios, you can kind of see how there's difficulty when it comes to grace and truth in the church. And if I took a poll of, of just you guys in here, I don't know, there's 100, 150 of you right now, and I asked you how to handle those two situations, do you know how many answers I would get? 100 to 150 different answers. And if you combine those with the, the ones from the first service, man, we got 300 different ideas and probably more depending on what time I ask you, right? I mean, you're talking about that first situation and the grace people are kind of like, how could someone do that? Yes, we want to show honor and worship to God, but it doesn't matter what clothes you're looking at. We want everyone to be welcome in here, no matter what they're wearing. How could they do that? How could the truth person be standing up? That's wrong, right? And then in the second scenario, you truth people are like, come on, we need to make sure that our teenagers are learning how to follow Jesus and show respect in their relationship. That's clear, right, what we need to do. And yet it's not clear. It's difficult because not only do we need to figure out exactly what to do, but how to do it. Who talks to that person? How do they say it? What do they say? And we all have different opinions, don't we? When you're talking about where grace and truth collide, it's sticky, it's messy, it's hard. And that's why when it comes to these difficult, challenging scenarios, if we want to be a a church where grace and truth collide, We need leaders who lead like Jesus. Seriously. We need leaders who are willing to say, I will step in and handle this situation and figure out with this difficulty what we need to do in this particular scenario, how we talk to the person, how we handle it. Do we need something? What what do we need to do? We need leaders like Jesus. So holding grace and truth requires leaders like Jesus. We need leaders who are like Jesus because we need to handle those situations in maybe different ways, knowing the the temperament of the people involved. Do we just tell that guy, you're not welcome here anymore? Or do we need to approach him in a certain way? Do we need to go apologize to the people that he offended that morning? What do we need to do? We need people who are like Jesus. And it takes leaders, especially in the church, so that they can lead a church well because every single one of us has a different opinion. And we need somebody that the buck stops with, right? So that's what we're going to see here. If we want to be a church like this, and I think we all do, we want to be a church where grace and truth collide. We need leaders like Jesus. So we're going to see this in Acts chapter 6. So if you guys are with me, let's open up to chapter 6, verse 1. We read there, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, what's going on there? There's a situation in the church. There's a good problem and a bad problem. So this occurs in the book of Acts, which is basically the history of the early church. So Jesus had died. He had risen from the dead. He appeared to over 500 people over 40 days. He gave kind of a command to his disciples who were there. There's about 120 of them at the time. Then he ascended into heaven. He said, okay, you guys figure it out now. And then this book of Acts tells the history of what happened because the church began to grow rapidly. It says that the number of disciples was increasing. Now, this is already after they went from 120 to 3,000 on one day. 
became the first megachurch. Then from 3,000 to 5,000, and this is even after that, even more people are coming to faith. And it says disciples. The word disciple means a learner or a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you guys knew this, but everyone who believes in Jesus is a disciple. There are not believers and then disciples over here. There are only good disciples and bad disciples. <laughs> Serious. If you believe in Jesus, you are a disciple. You are a follower of Jesus. So it's time to be a good disciple, right? And actually follow him. So this number is growing. All these people are coming to faith. They're hearing the good news of Jesus. He died and rose again. They're meeting these people who knew Jesus, who had seen him risen from the dead. And they're like, wow, I believe. I, I want to follow him. And there's two different groups among them. The Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. They're all becoming followers of Jesus. Now, even to this day, we have different groups of Jews. I met a Jewish guy a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to him, and he was trying to explain some of the differences between Orthodox Jews, and, uh, and it was confusing. I was like, man, it's almost as confusing as us Christians, right? Man, we make it complicated, right? But the Hellenistic meant that they were Greek. So probably these are people who spoke Greek, had Greek culture, had kind of left some of the, the kosher eating laws behind. They're, they're the Greekish Jews, right? And then there's the Hebraic Jews, that there are the ones that either speak Hebrew or Aramaic, very Hebrew in culture, want to be very Old Testament in what they eat and how they act. And these two groups probably didn't interact very much together. But now both of them are coming to faith, and there's this huge church that's growing with both of them to make matters worse. So, so I said there's a good problem and a bad problem. The good problem is that they're growing, right? That is a problem, but it's a good problem. They're trying to figure out how do we handle all these thousands of people who are coming to faith. Where do we meet? How do we have enough parking spots for all these people? Right? That's the good problem, right? But then the bad problem is now these Hellenistic Jewish widows are being overlooked in the food distribution. So widows in the first century, there was no social security. There was no government safety net. If you lost your husband, and this would have happened a lot in those days because of war, famine, uh, women just lived longer than men. They still do because we eat. Terribly, okay, but that's besides the point. But so there's all these, um, these Jewish widows, these Hellenistic Jewish widows, the Greek ones, and they're getting overlooked in the food distribution. So the church has started this soup kitchen, basically, right? This is the food pantry, and they're saying, hey, if you don't have anything, come, and we'll give you food so you can eat. This is their basic lifeline for these women. But one group of the women isn't getting enough food, being overlooked. Now, this is a bad problem, right? The complaint is that there's discrimination going on. Now, we don't know any more than just that one verse about what exactly is going on. And I think it could be one of two things. When we look at something like this, it could be overt discrimination, purposefully overlooking one group of people, or it might be on accident. And I have seen this happen a lot. And and I wonder if that was the situation going on. Because what people do, they don't even realize they're discriminating against people of a different race or ethnicity or people group. Because what they do is they favor the people that are like them, that look like them, talk like them. People do this. You don't, you don't even realize it. So maybe in this soup kitchen, somebody's ladling out the soup and they see the woman that they know and love. Oh, you know, this is a second cousin. You know, this is my mom's, my grandma's cousin. I'm going to give her an extra ladle today. Because I love her and her family. I want to take care of her. She's had it hard. But then by the time the end of the line comes, there isn't enough soup for the other women. 
Or, or maybe it's saying, hey, we're going to distribute food at 8 a.m. You've got to be there 8 a.m. sharp. And they just tell all their friends who speak the same language. And they don't post it in Greek. So the Greek widows hear about it and they're late. And by the time they show up, there's no food. And the truth people are saying, hey, we set a time we had food. And now you got here, you're late. There's no food for you. It could be overt. It could be subtle. We don't know. But whatever it is, it is discrimination. And this is just a little bonus point. We all need to think that way because we tend to favor people who we know and who look like us. We need to be very careful about it. It's not always deliberate when we do it, but we do it. There have been studies on even uh, babies as young as six months old show preference to people who look like them. We have to learn to overcome this, okay? And this is a problem not just in the first century, but today, isn't it, right? It's a problem, and we've got to learn how to overcome it. So this is a big problem no matter what the cause. We don't know. We know it's a problem, and we've got to work past it. So what do the leaders do? What, how do they handle this situation? It's like, well, we've got to tweet something to show our support for the Hellenistic Jews, right? No, no, we need a new policy. If we write some better policies and rules about how much uh, can fit in one ladle, you can't get two ladles, right? We need more rules, right? Well, here's the thing. No matter how good the rules are, no matter how great the policy is that gets written or produced, it doesn't matter unless the people actually implement the policy, right? It doesn't matter how good the policy or the rule. It doesn't matter what you say or do. How could we do this? This is awful. No, no, no. We need people who can implement what's right. It takes leaders And that's exactly, it's exactly what is going to happen. Now, you could look at this scenario and say, is this a grace issue or a truth issue? It seems like these people were not showing grace, right? They weren't showing kindness and acceptance to people who were different than them. That's probably what was going on. We don't know exactly. Maybe they were the truth people who said, hey, they weren't there at 8 a.m. Come on, no food for them. They know the rules. But whatever it is, it's not okay. It's a big problem, a bad problem. And that's why the leaders of the church come up with an idea. In verse 2, we see this. It says, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. What? Okay. <laughs> this seems kind of crazy, right? Here's the twelve. So these are Jesus' twelve disciples, his hand-picked people. He, he spent all night praying to choose his twelve disciples that he would spend the most time with. One of them, we know, betrayed Jesus, Judas. He killed himself, and then the disciples kind of picked another guy to take his place so that there would be these 12 main leaders in the church. These are the top guys. They're trying to make the decision, and they say, hey, we can't do this. We have other fish to fry. Now, we look at that, and we think, oh, my gosh, how could they be so, like, negative? I mean, wait on tables. And I think there is something lost in translation here because it seems really, like, rude. This is a big problem. There's discrimination going on. Won't you do something about this? But they say, hey, we are actually called. Our purpose is the ministry of the word. We need to be teaching. We need to be preaching. We need to be praying for people, caring for the whole church. We don't have time to wait on tables to figure this out. They're not saying this isn't a big issue. They're just saying we need someone else to handle it. And that's what they say next in verse 3. Verse 3, they say, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This is a big issue. It's a problem. 
But we are not the people to solve it. We need more leaders. We need leaders like Jesus to handle this situation. Now, if you have been in the workforce for a while, and especially if you are a leader in the workforce, you know that there is more than you can handle with your job, right? And the first thing we do when there's more than we can handle is we decide we're going to work harder or work longer. Well, I guess I've got to stay after. I've got to put in more hours. I've got to just try to put more energy into it, and then I can solve this issue. And then you run out of hours in the day. You're exhausted. Your spouse is upset because they're never seeing you. Your kids don't recognize you. You're starting to have heart issues and health problems because you're working all the time. Never taking a day off. You can't, there's definitely not time for a vacation. So then the next thing you do is like, well, I guess I've got to be more efficient. I need to write out my to-do list. I need to prioritize and only do the most important things. But then there are things that are getting left off. Maybe you get a good app to automate some of your situation, right? <laughs> I don't know if these disciples could do that, right? But we go through these, these processes. Okay, I've got to work harder, longer. And then I've got to, got to be more specific about what I'm doing and careful about how I do things. But then you realize, even then, I can't get to everything. What do you do then? Well, I need someone to help me. I need to either hire someone or, or recruit someone. And then I need to delegate. I need to turn over some of my responsibilities to them. Because I can't do it all. See, this is an important principle, no matter the workplace, right? No matter which field of work that you're in. But I think it's especially true in ministry. It's especially true in ministry because there is more people to minister. There are more spiritual needs and physical needs of people than anyone could handle. I've been a pastor now eight years, and this is true. There is no way I could ever do all the things I want to do in ministry, let alone all the things you want me to do in ministry. I'm serious. Tom Rainer was a great pastor, and then he was president of Lifeway, just resigned a couple weeks. No, I'm sorry, a couple months ago, years ago, I don't know. Tom Rainer, he's great. He did a survey, and so he went into a bunch of churches and just asked them. He said, okay, what I want you to do is write down the minimum hours you think your pastor should be giving to these different areas of ministry. How long should your pastor spend studying and preparing for their sermon? How long should they spend praying with people or visiting people in the hospital? How long should they spend on evangelism? How long should they spend on outreach? And he listed all the different things that a pastor is expected to do. He had people write it down, just the minimum hours, they thought. Do you know what the average expectation for their pastor's work schedule was? 116 hours a week. That's how many, the minimum they should spend. Do you know what that comes out to? It's like 16 hours a day, seven days a week. That's minimum that they expect. That's a lot. I think that's one of the reasons why even Forbes ranked uh, pastor as one of the five toughest leadership positions in the world. Interesting, right? Because there's so many spiritual needs. You could pray with people. You could counsel people till the cows come home. Still not get to everyone. Especially in a church that's growing. How can we handle all these issues? How can we ha- this is a big problem. We need help to manage where gr- grace and truth collide. How do we handle this? I don't have time. I read a book called The Pastor. Um, it's a memoir by Eugene Peterson who passed away a couple years ago. And he was talking about early on in his ministry when he was trying to do everything as a pastor. He's trying to counsel people, meet with people, go to all the meetings. And he said one night at dinner, his daughter Karen was five years old, and she asked him, he said, Daddy, can you read a book to me tonight? He said, sorry, honey, I need to go to a meeting. It was an elder meeting. And she said, Dad, but this is the 27th night in a row you've had a meeting. And he realized then on his seven-minute trip to the church that night for the elder meeting, it was time to quit. So he went into the elder board, and he said, it's time for me to resign. I can't do it anymore. 
I haven't been able to re- meet all the spiritual needs, and I certainly don't have time to spend with my family. They miss me. My kids don't even know me. I haven't been able to tuck my daughter in at night in a month. And he said, to make matters worse, I have no time to pray. How can I be praying for all these things that are going on? My prayer was just the few minutes on my way over here to decide to quit. I'm done. And the elder board was like, wait, 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 wait. We need you. We need you. This mean this is one of the best pastors our country has produced. They said, okay, we've got to figure out a way to do this differently. And what did they figure out? Same thing they figured out in the first century. We need more leaders to handle responsibility, right? We've got to turn it over, not just even delegate, but empower other leaders to handle these situations. We need to empower people to pray, to to meet the needs of things that are going on, to manage entire ministries, because no pastor can do it all. So this is what we continue to read in verse 5. We read, This proposal pleased the whole group, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So what are they doing? They're saying, we need more leaders. They figured out, okay, it's probably going to take about seven guys to manage this ministry. We need seven leaders. We're going to find these leaders, and we're going to look for specific ones who can handle this responsibility, and we're going to turn it over to them. We're going to empower them to handle this situation. We're not saying this isn't a problem. We're not saying it's a ministry that doesn't matter. In fact, it does. That's why we need more people to handle it. We were trying to do all of it. We need at least seven more people just to handle this one ministry. It's too much for us. And they prayed and laid hands on them. So this is them choosing them, then blessing them, saying, hey, we want the Holy Spirit to be on these leaders, and we're going to send them out. Now I want you to look closely at this. It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And back, if we look again at verse 4, it said when they were looking at them, so that they need those who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So they must have a reputation as a leader, as a servant, someone who has character. And and what they should be known for is that they're full of the Spirit and wisdom. Well, what's the Spirit? The Holy Spirit. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know who that Holy Spirit comes from? Jesus. So you need the Spirit of Jesus to lead them to know how to handle different situations. These these leaders didn't say, hey, we're going to write down the policy. No, they said, we're going to get these people that can be in there and they can figure out what to do. Do we need to order more food? Do we need to have a, a better line? Do we need to figure out all the people that are there, count them, then divide the food up so it's even? You guys figure it out. I don't know what to do, but you're going to know what to do. They want people full of the Spirit and wisdom. I think it's so interesting because it says full of the Spirit. Do you know this word full? We've seen it in our series so far. Do you remember where that was? John 1:14, where it said that Jesus comes from the Father full of grace and truth. So now they're saying, filled with the Spirit. Whose Spirit is that? The Spirit of Jesus Christ. So these leaders are now supposed to be full of grace and truth, just like Jesus was, so that they can figure out how to deal with that situation, full in the same way. And it said they must be full of wisdom. They've got to have some practical knowledge so that they can deal with the different situations that come up and figure out how to do it. They don't need to tell people exactly how to do their job, They just need to find the right person for the job. 
Now, this, I think, is a good leadership principle for anyone. If you are a leader, if you're hiring people, recruiting people uh, for volunteer positions, whatever it is, if you are a leader, you need to learn this principle, okay? It's a little bonus point. Is that leadership is more about the who than the how. I think in godly leadership, that's especially true we see in this Bible, but you could take that principle and extrapolate that anywhere. If you're looking for someone... You don't need to just look for these specific things on a resume or a specific skill set or experience. You can train skills. You've got to get the right person in the job. You guys, if you've ever hired anybody, you know what I'm talking about. It's about getting the right people in the right positions, and then they're going to figure it out. They'll figure out how to handle these difficult, tricky situations. And in the Bible, again and again and again, there's a little bit of skills that are important. You have to know a few things. But what we really want are people... Of character. People who are godly. The who matters more than the how. We're going to see this more a little bit later. And, and that's especially what they were looking for. They didn't say, hey, we need some guys that have a background in food distribution. Somebody that's has some experience dealing with widows. They didn't look for any of that. They said we need people who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And we're going to unleash them to handle that ministry in that situation. Right? We need people who can be leaders and deal with the tricky situations. When we're talking about grace and truth, how do you handle this youth group trip, right? Well, we need leaders who know how to do it. That they can make a decision. And not only that, they know how to talk to the people involved so they don't offend somebody unnecessarily. We need people filled with grace and truth to be leaders. Holding grace and truth requires leaders like Jesus. And do you want to, want to know the really cool thing when they did this, when they unleashed these seven leaders to take over this ministry? Do you know what happened? Do you know what it says in verse 7? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There's more people coming to faith, even at a quicker rate than before. And priests becoming obedient to the faith. This means radical conversions. People are leaving a faith that they have given their life to as priests in the Jewish tradition. And now they're saying, hey, I'm giving my life to Jesus because I believe that he died and rose for my sins. Okay, this is incredible ministry that's happening because these top leaders, these 12 disciples said, we can't do everything. We need to do what we are called to do and raise up other leaders to do more. Right? You guys tracking with me? This may sound like a weird thing, but I want to tell you guys that this is so important for us to understand. We need leaders who are like Jesus. And as our church grows, and I believe that we are primed for growth, I am I, praying for something like this to happen, that we're seeing radical conversions, more people coming to faith, increasing rapidly, faster than we've seen people come to faith before. If we want that to happen, we need more godly leaders raised up, men and women like Jesus. You guys with me? So now let's talk for a little bit. We've, we've covered our passage now. You've got the big idea. Let's talk about what that means for us here at our church. So we've talked about this for a while, kind of behind the scenes, and we've been thinking about it and praying about it for a while. But what we want to do is establish basically the same concept that was happening in the early church. You see, these 12, later in the New Testament, become the pastors. They become the elders of the church. So that there's this level of leadership that's saying, hey, we're overarching, we're going to be the shepherds, we're going to preach, we're going to pray, we're going to lead from the word. That's the ministry of the word. But then we need others to help manage specific ministries. Do you know what those people became called? 
Does anybody know? Deacons. See, in the New Testament, it became kind of a formula that there was these two different types of leadership. The overseers, the elders, and the deacons. Because the word deacon literally means servant. The ones serving at the table, they're managing this ministry. They're the servant leaders of the church. They're managing specific ministries, and the elders are about that. So what we've said, hey, we've kind of already been doing this, but let's start calling it what it is. Okay, so what we're doing here is we're going to have these two different types of leadership. We have the elders and deacons here. Now, if you come from a Baptist background, we're not talking about a deacon board. If you come from a Presbyterian background, we're not talking about the people in charge of the Benevolence Fund. Okay, I want you guys to throw that out. We're talking biblically here. There are these two levels. In the book of Philippians, they're already called that. In the book of 1 Timothy, which we'll look at in a second, there are these two different types of leaders. Overall leaders and ministry leaders. Got that? Does that make sense? So let's, let's kind of break it down for what that means here. Next slide. We have here as our elders an elder board. We have an elder board. Um, I, as a lead pastor, am on the elder board as well. I have a vote on the elder board. But we also have pastors. So right now Sawyer Trapp is also a pastor. He's not on our elder board. Uh, but in the future we could have more pastors here. In fact, we have a couple of our staff that are going through the process to become pastors, to get licensed that way. For our deacons, there's a whole bunch of different titles, but what we're saying, hey, all these people are at the level of leadership, are directors on staff, managers, coordinators, team leaders. We don't really care about the title, you know, but what we're saying is that this is a level of leadership that are called by God. Okay, in the next slide we see that um, the elders are the pastoral shepherds, and I know that's redundant because pastor means shepherd, but these are the people who care for your souls, that watch over you like shepherds watch over a flock of sheep. We care about you, pray for you, If somebody wanders off, we try to chase them down and bring them back. Our deacons are the practical servant leaders. They're they're, they're dealing with the practical ministries, the day-to-day stuff. Going on, the elders are the people who are maybe making decisions from the 10,000-foot level. The 10,000-foot decisions, they're saying, hey, overall, where are we going as a church? What are our vision and values? Where's the direction we're headed? But then the deacons are the people who are making the the boots-on-the-ground decisions, right? They realize, hey, we've got to figure out how to do this. So the elders, we're praying, we're excited about a night service. We think that's the direction our church is going. But then we say, hey, we need our team leaders, our deacons, to kind of figure out what that means. So the cafe ministry, Jess, uh, Martinez, and Renata Wyndham are, are kind of our deacons over the cafe ministry. They say, hey, people probably at night don't want donuts. I would want a donut, but I understand some people don't want a donut at night. So they're like, hey, we've got to figure out how to do it. Well, guess what? The elders are fine with that. You guys figure out what you want to serve people for the meal. We'll support you unless you're doing something entirely crazy that's way outside of the realm of a cafe. You guys make those decisions. You guys figure out how to minister to make our cafe an area of hospitality so when people come, they have some food and and coffee or whatever or drinks, whatever the refreshments are, so people feel welcome here. You guys figure that out for what your ministry needs to do. We don't need to micromanage it, right? Okay, going along with this, the elders oversee the whole church. They have to keep in mind the budget for every ministry, figure out where everything is going, but the deacons deal with their specific ministry. What are kids' ministry doing? Student ministry, cafe, worship team. You guys can handle and manage, make your own specific policies or whatever you need for your ministry. We don't need to be involved in that. Does that make sense? We have these two different levels of ministry, and both are are so important for the church to operate and for the church to have grace and truth colliding. We need people who are overseeing everything, and we need people who are dealing with the specifics. And it takes both different types of leadership, and this is a very biblical concept, and this is what we're implementing here. 
So I want to introduce you know, some of these people. Some of you guys are new. You don't even know who any of these leaders are in our church, but I want to tell you who some of them are. Um, we had a, um, them here in the first service. They had to, a couple of them had to leave, but Garrett, Greg Buchanan is one of our elders. Kenton Chan, he's leading our Mexico trip right now. It should be back now. It's past 11. They should have landed already, but he was on the Mexico team. Mike Crowell and Gary Lidholm. Now, we have four right now. We want to bring on one or two. I think one might be coming off this season, uh, come October 1st. But we want this team, these are our shepherds. These guys are here, and they're here. We at least have one elder at every service so that they can pray for you, care for you, love you. Um, you know, If you're sick, you can call on the elders of the church, we read in James chapter 5, and we'll pray for you. We'll anoint you with oil. These are your shepherds. But then we also have some deacons. Now, we have a whole bunch of these, but I want to introduce you to some newish of our deacons, our team leaders. So Melissa Webb, she has been overseeing our Ashley Elementary partnership. We want to minister to that school right down the street. So she's been coordinating with that. This back-to-school stuff, she can help you answer questions about that so we can get stuff going on there. Grace and Sonny Chan. Now, Grace has been helping me as the night service coordinator. She's kind of organizing that whole service so we have enough volunteers and everything in place. Sonny Chan has been serving as our AV, our audiovisual team coordinator. He's making sure we have that staff, that we we have all the technology operating. Sometimes we call him early Sunday morning, even if he's not having to be here because we've got a problem. And he knows how to fix it. So we we love these leaders. We also have Tiffany Vaughn. Now, we partner with our MOPS ministry with other churches in the area, but Tiffany is the representative from our church to help lead that MOPS ministry. Now, you can see a few other new deacons. Aaron Dennington. She has been coordinating all our meal train ministry. In the past, it was just meals for uh, new moms, but now we have people who are sick or or dealing with a health issue. Well, we want to provide meals to them. Well, Aaron's the one coordinating all of that. Casey Lamb, she's done an incredible job as our graphic designer with our logo and website, but now she's overseeing an entire marketing team to help get our name out in the community. Jasmine Hendricks, she has been on the prayer team for a long time. Hey, Jasmine. And now she is helping to co-lead with Gerardo. The prayer team meets between services. They pray for you if you guys put in a prayer request. They meet Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. to pray for our whole church. And Jasmine is stepping up to help lead that ministry. And we're so grateful for these newish deacons. And there's a couple others I'm going to introduce to you next week as well. Can you guys give those people a round of applause? Now, this is even just scratching the surface for all the different ministries we have here. But what we need are even more leaders to step up. We need people who are willing even just to support leaders and say, hey, I'll learn how to be an assistant leader or a co-leader. So some of you may even feel stirred right now that, hey, I want to lead this ministry. In fact, if you come to me and say, Matt, why don't we have a ministry that does this? Do you know what I say to you? Tag your it. <laughs> Tag your it. You figure it out. It's good. It's important. But just as a pastor, it takes me 20 to 25 hours a week to prepare this message. So it's like half my week's gone. So if you're like, you've got to do this, I'm like, Sorry. <laughs> I want to have a relationship with my wife and and daughter and future kids. Sorry. (laughs) I love them just as much as I love you. No, not as much. Sorry. I love her more and my daughter more. So what I mean by this is we need more leaders. We need people who are saying, hey, I will step up to be that. And and what's interesting is I said the who is more important than the how. And you can see this in a place like 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read through this really quickly. We read, now the overseer, which is another word for elder, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, 
temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome but not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. It goes on, verse 5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. See all these qualifications for the elders? There's only one skill listed, able to teach. Everything else is about their character. It's about the who, not the how. So if you're thinking and praying through who could be an elder of our church, think through this list. Pray through it. You can look at First Peter chapter five verses one through four, or in Titus one five through nine that has a great uh, couple other lists of what those qualifications are. But there's also qualifications for those who are serving as deacons. In verse eight, we read in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In verse eleven, we read. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Once again, it's a whole list of qualifications that are about character, right? Who they are, not how they're going to lead. If you get the right people in place, they're going to figure out how to lead and manage the ministry, right? And that's what we're looking for with leaders. Now, we already talked a little bit about our process for elders, we do have kind of a formal nomination process. We examine those people. We, we have them fill out a, um, a questionnaire. We do interviews to kind of vet people. Uh, so it is a process for that. But for deacons, what we're looking for is people who are serving. So if some of you are like, Matt, I would love to be a leader in the church. I would love to be a team leader or a coordinator or whatever it is. I encourage you to serve somewhere and to be faithful with that. And if you're serving somewhere and you're faithful in your service, we're going to eventually see if you're a leader and you feel called to it, we're going to try to get you to be a leader, to be an assistant leader and then a co-leader and then maybe a lead in entire ministry. And that's what we've seen. People like Kintin Chan, who's on our elder board now, he started serving faithfully in the church just as a member like everyone else. And then he started overseeing our Denver Rescue Mission ministry to just get meals once a week, right? Feed a meal once a week to Denver Rescue Mission. And then we had more people, so we started organizing two nights a week and now three nights a week. And with that, he's like, I can't handle this. Also, he has other leaders who now are in charge of each one of those nights. And then we were like, Kenton, he's a great leader. Let's bring him on our elder board. And this is what we want to see. If people feel called to leadership, and it's a good thing to desire to be a leader, we ask you to serve faithfully and to continue to do that, and God will raise up those more leaders. So I know this may seem like a weird topic for this series, but it's so essential. It's so essential that we have leaders in place if we want to be a church where grace and truth collide. If we want to be the the people that know how to handle tricky situations, we need more and more godly leaders, leaders like Jesus who can handle it. Holding grace and truth requires leaders like Jesus. So as I have the band come up right now, what we're going to do next is take communion. We do this on the first Sunday of the month, and we remember Jesus. Well, how did Jesus lead? Think about it. Did you know that for his three years of ministry, he found some followers? And then he started to train them and give them responsibility. Have you noticed that? I think he kind of made them deacons. If you look at it, when there's these 4,000 people, 5,000 people who need to eat, and they say, hey, these people need to eat, what does Jesus say to them? Feed them. 
you guys figure it out. And they struggle. So he's like, fine, I'll perform a miracle. Gets them all this food, and then he talks to them afterwards to train them. How could you have handled that situation a little differently? And then eventually he starts training them, and he sends them out. He gives them more assignments, more responsibility. They start praying. They start preaching. And then by the time he leaves, just three years later, they're ready to be the leaders, the elders of the church, right? And what's amazing is that Jesus only did ministry for three years, focusing on just 12 guys, and now there are 2.6 billion people who claim the name of Christ. That's some good leadership right there. That's some good leadership because Jesus showed us how to lead. And on top of that, he demonstrated what it meant to be a person who holds on to grace and truth, doesn't he? And his disciples learned how to do that and to empower others to do the same thing. So much so that Jesus gave his life for us sinners, people who needed desperately the grace of God. And he died on the cross for our sins. And that is the greatest example of leadership. I think it's amazing. Somebody pointed this out in a book I was reading, that there's only one time in all the Gospels that we are told to follow Jesus' example. Did you know that? Just one time in the Gospels. Do you know what it was about? When Jesus washed his disciples' feet. See, the greatest leaders are the ones who serve all. And that's how they can show grace and truth to everyone because they're serving others. All of our leaders here are servants. Our job is to serve you, serve our community, serve those who are in need. And to lay down our lives just as Jesus did, the great shepherd for the sheep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you gave us the example of being the perfect servant leader. Holding on to truth, yes, but holding on to grace even more so. Lord God, I pray that we would have leaders in our midst, that I would be a leader like you. That I would lay down my life for others, to serve others with my very life. And I pray that all of us would learn from your example, Jesus. And I pray that you'd raise up more and more leaders among us. Jesus, you told us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And you told us to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters into the field. Lord, so we are calling on you. We need more leaders. We are anticipating growth in our church, and we're excited about where you are leading. We're expecting radical conversion stories, more and more people to come to know you. We're we're asking for more disciples in Northeast Denver, for our church to grow. And Lord God, we pray that you raise up all the leaders we need and more to manage ministries, to direct our church, so that more and more people could know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be able to remember that, to follow that example in all we do here at Stapleton Church. In Jesus' name. Matt said, as Pastor Matt said, we're going to participate in communion. And we do this on the first Sunday of every month uh, as a church community together. And because we do it on a regular basis, I think it's really important for us to understand why we do this on a regular basis. Um, communion is, is first and foremost, it's a reminder to us of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. His death for us. Uh, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled so that you and I, our sins could be forgiven and so that we could have new life, eternal life in him. The communion is also a participation, right? So as we eat the bread and as we drink from the cup, uh, we're participating in the reality that because of what Jesus has done for each and every one of us, we now have a living relationship with the living God. That's amazing. 
God gives us hope and purpose and meaning in this life here and now as we wait for that day that Christ will come again. So as you guys pass these elements out, um, I want to encourage you that if you're a Christian, I want to invite you to participate in communion this morning. I want to encourage you to rejoice and give thanks to God for what He's done for you today. I'll ask you as well just to hold on to the elements for just a few moments so that we can participate all together. So oh.